What is the greatest work project you have ever been a part of? Rhetorical question. Don't feel like you have to tell your neighbor. I was on vacation, got to see my brother, got to meet his new girlfriend whose name is, I'll give you a hint, my mom's name is Stephanie, my wife's name is Stephanie. Yes, more therapy is coming. My brother's girlfriend's name is Stephanie, and she was talking about how she got to work and be a part of a dam. I thought that was cool. She like built it or engineered it. I'm not too sure. I was listening, but I didn't quite understand. Maybe the greatest work project you've ever been has been some huge merger or I don't even know. When I answered, I talked about the greatest work project that I have been a part of was one that could quite possibly have changed the world. I was in high school. We had to make a video that was silent, and so we put together this silent film. Now, I won't go into the crazy details of how I had to dress up like a a scary person who was going to attack somebody, and I was running through the streets of Tustin, and the police pulled me over as I was running, and then my friends kept driving. I won't go into all that. Like, oh, we didn't want to get you in any more trouble. I was like, yeah, right. But I will say that the video itself came out to be like, whatever the greatest Academy Award winning video you're thinking of, throw it away. This was better. Didn't even have a title. It was so cool. Now, right before we're to show it to the class, my project assistant to the manager dropped it, shattered the VCHR thing, whatever it was back in the day, and it never got shown. Had it been shown, not only would I got an A in that class, but film, as you know it, would have been changed. That's the greatest history of the world project that ever could have been. If the Bible were to tell you about one, any chance you might want to think of what it is? It's an ancient one. It involves a bunch of people coming together, and it is a story of utter disaster as well. I'm talking about the Tower of Babel. This was a well-organized, well-thought-out plan. They were going to build a building, a tower, what have you, that was so big That no matter where you were on planet Earth, you were going to be able to see it. And you would be assured of the greatness of man. And you know how this story goes. Community is shattered. Language gets all garbled up. Civilization is still trying to recover from what happened here. But they were trying to accomplish something greater than God ever could. Trying to show that this was going to be our proudest moment as mankind. We are going to accomplish something in human history that will be talked about forever, seen forever, driven by the selfish need to be recognized and to show that mankind does not need God. So it is no wonder that when we talk of work as Christians, that one of our first tasks in following Jesus is to unlearn or to relearn the works that we first did. That's Revelation chapter 2. Likewise, metaphorically and literally, as Christians, we have to learn not to work like the devil. Literally, devil's bad. Metaphorically, working like the devil means you're working a lot. Are you following me, sir? He has given me the holy nod. We're moving on. Now, see, work is a major component of most of our lives. It doesn't matter who you are. It's unavoidable. Either work is going to be good or bad, whether you drive a truck, lawyer, doctor, student, teacher. Work is either an area where you can sin more or where you can grow in faith. For it is the nature of the evil one to take whatever work, whatever responsibilities, whatever tasks you have, and twist them ever so slightly so that they miss the target of God and rather become hitting something else. And so when we turn to our text today, 
We see that Psalm 127 has something to draw our focus to in regards to work. So I'm going to read the first two verses. They're there in your bulletin if you'd like to look. If you uh, uh, have a Bible, you can do that. If not, you can. If you still have a phone, I don't know if people are still using their phones these days, you can look on your phone to see the verse there. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Now, some people read those two verses and they summarize it this way. You don't have to work hard if you're a Christian. You don't have to put yourself all out for anything. You can simply go to sleep because, as the text said, God is doing everything that will ever need to be done. And the Apostle Paul had to deal with some of these people. They were at a church in a city called Thessalonica, And they were saying that since God has done everything in Christ for us on the cross, then what more is there for us to do? We don't want to become self-righteous like those Pharisees and, and be these hypercritical people who are only focused on the work and the things that we're doing. We don't want to do that. Maybe we should just quit working and sit around and wait for the Lord to return like we're interpreting it to say. I mean, with a magnificent Redeemer like Jesus and a majestic Father in heaven, what really can we do? And so they sat around doing nothing. And meanwhile, they lived by faith off of their less spiritual friends. They let those less spiritual friends do all the work, and they simply got a percentage of all the people, and they just kind of said, you know what, you do it, and then we'll reap because we're living by faith, and it did not go over too well. As the Apostle Paul said, don't you remember the rule we had when we lived with you? If you don't work, you don't eat. And now we're getting reports that a bunch of you lazy good-for-nothings are taking advantage. This must not be tolerated. We command you to get to work immediately. No excuses, no arguments. Earn your own way. Friends, don't slack off in doing your duty. This coming from that same apostle Paul who, as he wrote it a little bit earlier, worked his fingers to the bone while he was there serving them in the city, making sure that he would not be a financial burden to any of them. So how dare they reinterpret the gospel into this logical rationalization for laziness and no need to work. So which is it? Working our fingers to the bone, doing nothing. Is this where I get to tell you all about balance? Find the happy medium and then everything will go well. Work hard, but don't work too hard. Take vacation, but not too many vacations. And if you go on vacation, don't go to Disney World four days in a row. Give yourself some days in rest. It'll work out better for you. Now, honestly, if we're thinking about work, it's hard to not let work be tainted by that selfishness and that pride. And so maybe we really should kind of just withdraw from all the activity and simply be, as I hear a lot about today. You know, I always get in trouble when I do something, so why not do nothing? I'm going to step out of the rat race. I'm going to get out of the way of motion. I'm going to say as little as possible in my meetings. I'm going to do as little as possible to not draw attention to myself. I'm going to withdraw absolutely from everything, any thought or passions, and I certainly because I have found the root of all problems in work, withdraw from relationships with people. Because it's not me, it's the people I work with that are the real problems at work. We should really be turning to machines, technology, things like that. 
They're far more efficient. They get stuff done a lot cheaper and faster and obviously better for the earth. Now, that doesn't always turn out as we see that some places are getting ravaged and things are kind of spiraling out of control, but that's all right. Technology overall is good, we can tell ourselves, and I agree with that. Look at the advancements we have in medicine and things like that. So we're back to the same spot we were before. Do I do a lot or do I do nothing? And if you're like me when you wrote this sermon or if you're listening to this sermon now or you've already checked out, you're probably saying, you know what? I kind of came to Sunday to not talk about work. I don't want to talk about work. I don't like work. I came to church to do this. Now, honey, that list that I'm going to do later for you, the chores, that's not work. I love to do that. But I'm not here to talk about work and how I'm supposed to do it. Well, our text today really doesn't tell us how we are to work. Our text simply just takes for granted that we all have to work no matter who we are. The desire of the text is to remind you that God works. There's a two-letter word at the beginning of some of those sentences in your verse, and it's the word if. If God doesn't build the house, if God doesn't guard the city, the condition if proclaims that God does the work, he builds, he guards, and that's the focus. All people work, but Christians, we believe that our God works too. We really believe that he is the center of our existence. We pay attention to what he does and who he is. And we order our lives in response to his work and not to our own. Only then can we truly experience the truth in work. Because in the beginning, God created. God worked. He did not sit back majestically in a nice comfy chair and say, someone else do it. The very beginning, we are not told God is lovely and beautiful and has a beard that rivals Pastor Mike's. No, we find that God created. He did something. He made something. The days are described by his work, which is described as very good. And what that means is that we live in a universe and in a history where God is, has, and will continue to be working. And before we say anything about work, we know that work is an activity of God. Our biblical record could not be more clear. God created, God redeemed, God helps, God is compassionate, God brings comfort, God saves. We see the Father in work in Jesus Christ, and it's why we come back to the scriptures again and again and study them so carefully. Because in every time we talk about work or living or serving as a Christian, we see a pattern setting up in the New Testament. It begins with telling us the work of God and then how we now participate in that work. We find that the curse of people's lives is not work as such as just work. But really, it's the scentless work, the vain work, the futile work, the compulsive, frantic work, the lazy work, any work that takes place apart from God, any work that ignores the if. Because if God is working, then work is good. And if God has a purpose in his work, then we align ourselves with that purpose. 
and we focus and learn to measure our work by what God is working towards. Only when we are orientated by God's work first and how he has set us free and put us in this stream of what he's doing do we become free of all the compulsiveness and hopelessness of work and we become free to finally sleep. Not the resting my eyes and falling asleep at night kind of sleep, but the feeling of working in a purposeful, energized, and confident way which leads to sleep. Sleep that comes from knowing what you're doing is right, regardless of how hard or challenging or the type of work it is. So then what are we working towards? Does that mean we're working for the Lord and so we better do it as well as we can and work till we die like he did? Or does it mean what? Verses 3 through 5 give us an idea. So let's read that. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. Anyone who is a parent will tell you that children are a blessing. So this example is a great one even if you are not a parent or you don't have children. Here's why. Because when a child is in the womb, what does the parent do to make it grow? Now, this is a family service, so we're going to skip step one. But how does the parent at a cell here or there when they're supposed to? When a child's born, how does the parent make the child grow? How do they make the hair pop out in their head? All of that happens naturally. We can't stop it. Though I will try to stop my daughter from becoming a teenager. Can I get an amen? <laughs> but the truth is, we do very little work and making these children, we shape them, we nurture them, but making them really know. So it is interesting that the example given by the smartest man who ever lived is that the character of our work is not shaped by the accomplishment of having a child or possessing the child, but it is in the birth of the child, in the birth of relationships showing that we are to invest our energy into people and among those whom we work with, the difficult part of work, the working with people, the creating sons and daughters, sisters and brothers in the workplace, even as our Lord did with us. No work that we do can create righteousness, but the work that we do can make a difference in the personal relationship that we now create and develop. So we learn a name, start a friendship, share a smile. And it moves and transforms us from consumers who use work to get things. And the disciples who pay attention and help and encourage and grow the people they work with. That's our work. To watch and see what God is working at and then participate in that work. And I don't know what that's going to look like depending on where you work. 
I can't give you the specific answer, but I can point you to something in Scripture that I found very interesting, that a couple of guys who followed Jesus around, they wanted some help with work as well. It comes to us in Luke chapter 11. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. He finished one of them and said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. So he says to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Jesus then tells them a, a parable about two friends, one who pounds on the door all night demanding for bread, and the guy's like, hey, get away, man. My kids are asleep. And then Jesus says, if he keeps knocking, he's not going to get up and give you bread because you're his friend, but because of your persistence, the shameless audacity that you have to say, give me what I need. And so he says, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And whoever knocks, the door will be opened. And then he concludes with some comments about family. Which of the fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Your daughter asks for an egg, will give them a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? These disciples watched Jesus teach, whether it was in a field, synagogue, temple, whatever. They watched him do it for, what, like three years? And when the time comes that they finally sift through everything they want to ask him, they're going to pick one thing, because this is the only time in the entire scripture where the disciples come up to Jesus and say, teach us. What do you think you'd ask? How to walk on water? What was it like at the creation? All of these choices introductory courses are done. They are now ready for the AP class. They're desiring to be like him. And they choose to pray. Teach us to pray. Is this not significant? They don't ask to be taught better behavior. They don't ask how to think more accurately about God. No request here for some strategic plan to take their business to the next level or how to raise the bottom line. Rather, they've been living with Jesus, watching him, listening to him, and coming to the realization that being renewed, doing work, doesn't mean imitating what he does or repeating what he says. It means cultivating a relationship with God the way that they see Jesus having a relationship with God. They want to work out of that God-personal, God-relational, God-love-fueled center the way that Jesus does. And who doesn't? So they ask for instruction and training in this. And in the most deeply humanizing way, Jesus says, pray. Gives them prayer, tells them a story, gives a couple comments. The model that he gives for prayer is quite insultingly brief, is it not? It's like what? How many words is that? 36 words, maybe? You pray it nice and slow. It takes about 27 seconds. We're going to find out in a little bit. You show up. You bring out your notepad. You've asked Jesus the question. You got your iPad. You're going to take a picture on your phone because you're not actually going to write notes. What was they thinking with the notepad? But you're going to do it. And then it's what? A minute, two, class dismissed, done. $3,500 of a master's class that you don't get back. But that's it. But the next section isn't found with the disciples super angry with this limited explanation. They've been taught to read, to write, to count, just like all of us. And then they were probably tested on how to do these things in school. The more complex, the longer it is. So why is it so short here in this prayer, story, comment combination that Jesus gives? 
prayer is supposed to be learned a different way. A way just like how you learn to walk or to talk. By way of relationships. Not through another class, but through participation. Look at the stories. It starts with father. The story is about friendship. And it ends again with a father-child relationship. All verbs, personal. Come, give, forgive, lead not, lend, give. In work, not everything goes smooth all the time. In fact, it probably rarely does. And we can spend our entire lives and careers dealing and working with struggles and problems, successes and failures. But our identity and the developing character is formed in a relationship with Jesus and is formed in prayer. We are biological, we are psychological, but the foundation of who we are is personal. Prayer is not just an ask or a thank you or a wow, you're amazing. Prayer is a relationship. And it's in the prayer and the story and the comments that we are drawn to the practicality of life. Bread in both of them. And then more food in the second. Everything immersed in this daily life. Not just here in church, but out there at the table, out there everywhere. And then it ends with the Holy Spirit. Moving from talking about normal work things, normal eating things, into the Holy Spirit so that Jesus can anchor our understanding and that the way of God's finds its way into each and every hour of each and every day. A personal God, a relationship God, who speaks, listens, acts, and works. God comprehensively and personally present in all of us. True renewal, true work, not work that is done in vain, but work for the kingdom comes from the hearing and the talking, the listening and the telling of stories and the being in relationship with people as the Spirit will lead you. And if you want help with how to work, it seems like prayer is the very best place to start. When it comes down to it, true prayer is not just a parodying of words, though we need to have those so that we can be anchored and not just let our emotions drive us, but rather the conversation that will keep us thoroughly and absolutely personal in our relationship and approach to God comes in prayer and then manifests itself in the work that we do for the kingdom. And that work could be delivering food, could be signing a paper, could be whatever. But when it is done in relationship and in a loving way, supporting and encouraging others, bathed in prayer, then we experience the work that he talks about, the work that leads to rest. So if you came to church today, I can only assume you came to give praise to be encouraged by the word, and also to be in community. And a big part of our community's responsibility is to pray. So why don't we pray now?
You don't have to get up just yet. I want you to take, I don't know, 20 seconds to silently pray. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector, they both were sinners and they both came to church to pray. There's something to be said there. No matter who you are, you come to church to pray. So let's pray now.